Joe. Alibongo. Alibongo. <coughs> yes, indeed. Don't Bing- be making up, making up strange things. Bingo bongo. Don't be ra- making up racist sounding names for <laughs> leaders of Africa that you. Well, his name is Bongo. Ali Bongo, actually. Come on. I, that, we're just going to report the news. We are, of course, referencing um, the latest coup in Africa, um, in Gabon, um, also West Africa, another French-speaking ex-colony of France, where yet another military coup has happened. That's uh, four in the last month and a bit. Um, it's actually six, though. Mm. Let me think now. Is it Mali. six or seven? Going back to this November last year. It's been a year then, six. Mali was first. Chad it kind of counts. It's more of a civil war status there, but one of the factions is definitely on the same mm-hmm. talking points and action points as the others. But so you've got all the way from... Uh, oh, Guinea's another one. So you actually, it's an entire strip of West Africa from the coast with Guinea... Then Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger most recently, Gabon last week, and Chad. Um, right off the bat, quite good cool outside, yeah, but not quite. But it goes from the the west coast, the Atlantic coast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot. Uh, that right off the bat, that's, when this happened, I was thinking this is coordinated. That or it's just simply follow the leader. One of them influenced the others. There's got to be coordination behind this behind the scenes, between these militaries and but possibly further afield. Maybe. I mean, but not overt, apparently. I mean, you know, subtle, maybe behind the scenes, assurance is given. Uh, or, but I think it's, it's more than any kind of... Because, I mean, obviously Africa is, is known. When people hear about a coup in Africa in an African country, they go, oh, another right. one. Another one, Par for the course, right? Although they don't realise that that idea that coups are par for the course in African countries, you know, goes back to you know the the sixties, seventies, eighties during the Cold War when there was a a, a new scramble for Africa, basically um, between the US, essentially the US and and the, and the Russians and the Soviet Union, um, the US and their allies, and there were a lot of coups. Um, over those years, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and most of them carried out by, or a lot of them, let's say, carried out by, um, in one way or another, by Western powers, particularly America and the French, in order to keep control over Africa, because, you know, during the Cold War, Africa was seen as, you know, this is ours, there's massive resources, massive natural resources in Africa, and it was part of the Cold War. It was posturing in the Cold War to maintain power and control over natural resources and therefore power globally. Um, and the West did pretty well in, in, in securing that over, over during during the first Cold War, or the the <laughs> Cold War Part 1. Uh, and, and they killed many, they killed several, at least there's at least nine or ten different uh, uh, African, African nation leaders who were either assassinated or, you know, overthrown and then assassinated or killed in one way or another. You know, at the hands, essentially, of the CIA and the French. Also, Portuguese were in there now and again, depending on their interests. Belgium. Congo, Belgium. Lumumba. So... This is different, though. I think 
there's a character difference. Yeah, so well, that's speak. what I'm saying. Well, I'm saying that people have this idea that there's, that there's coups in Africa because there were so many coups in Africa over the years. And like I said, a lot of them were instigated by the West in order to keep control over African countries and their, and their natural resources and effectively keep African countries poor, uh, relatively poor and impoverished. Uh, they put, they'd put in, they'd have tin pot tin pot dictators or leaders or whatever who would be and them and their friends would be massively wealthy while the rest of the population were living mostly in, in poverty um, so when people hear about a coup in Africa they think oh, they don't know why they, they don't really they, yeah there have been a lot of coups in Africa but most people don't realise the nature of the coups in Africa over the past 50-60 years and they think this is just more of the same and they think so they're not even wrong in a certain sense most people most people don't have a proper understanding of what actually has gone on in Africa and what's going on in Africa today. And um, in, in those times, though, it was one faction to replace another that maybe was going a bit too independent. So well, the Western intel slash military types could just endlessly bring out a new one and a new one and, and to keep the, the game going. This time it's different. They can't do that because in the seven countries in question, there's a unified messaging and a unified front. No, we're talking about doing away with that whole regime. So you have to explain structurally what the regime is. One of the fascinating things about this for me is that all these countries in question have to share the same currency. Who knew that? I mean, I actually didn't. I, I've read quite a bit about it. I didn't know. This is a nicely guarded secret which mm. has just been busted by the last year's events. They have a currency called a colonial franc. franc. Yep. This franc is regulated by the French Central Bank, mm-hmm. slash the EU nowadays, because France itself is subsumed into the Eurozone, and that's the currency that's used there. Those countries don't really have a central bank because it's all deposited in Paris. In Gabon's case, I have an explainer on here, two-minute video. Uh, this is just all about... Maybe people can fact-check this. Maybe, maybe It sounds too crazy to me to be true, like... This is a taste of what it actually means to be neocolonialist. It's not just you know something whimsical. There's a, a structural basis to it. Here's, here's a background explainer in Gabon. Um, fully half of the country's resources have been going to France for 55 years. There's been a lot of instability. In Gabon's case, it's actually extremely stable. 55 years, Ali Bongo Sr., and then Junior rule the country with an iron fist. 55 years of corruption. I wouldn't call that stability, as we, as we understand it, it. It's stability as far as the <laughs> Western yeah. Empire is concerned. Right. Um, okay, so this, is how, this is how it's worked with Gabon. Since 1960, France has invaded Africa more than 50 times. Look at the Central African country of Gabon as one example. Gabon is particularly important to France because it has a huge supply of oil and an even bigger supply of uranium. Among the African colonies, Gabon was historically one of the very closest to France. In 1967, a man named Omar Bongo became Gabon's president, soon turning the country into a one-party dictatorship. And Bongo was intimate with France. He had been appointed after flying to Paris for what was basically a job interview with the president. So under Bongo, France and Gabon enjoyed a relationship that benefited both sets of elites. Gabon's oil was pumped by the French state-owned oil company ELF, and its uranium went right into France's arsenal of nuclear weapons. In return, France subsidized Gabon's budget, especially the parts that flowed into the pockets of Omar Bongo and his family. At one point, 
Bongo is worth over $130 million. Gabon, meanwhile, remained poor and underdeveloped. Under Bongo, it had one of the highest infant mortality rates in the world. Instead of investing in the Gabonese economy, Bongo spent state funds on influencing French politics in his favor, bankrolling the campaigns of central future French presidents. Even today, France keeps troops in the country to support Gabon's current ruler, who happens to be Omar Bongo's son. Bongo Bong. That's a racket that's been going on 55 years. Yeah, that's replicated in most other countries, you know, and most other, and a lot of other African countries, you know, uh, yeah. where it's basically a, a rich elite and a relatively impoverished population, despite massive amounts of natural resources that don't seem to make their way into the local economy. Do we want to hear the the military guys in Gabon announcing um, their coup? Because it, it gives well, it gives a reason. I mean, I can just say what the reason is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're overthrowing this regime, basically this corrupt regime of fifty five years. Mm-hmm. It's gone. It's finished. Um, uh, yeah, they don't cite anything, any, anything external. Or they don't mention the other countries. But clearly, this is all like there's some synchrony going on here mm-hmm. with the rest of West Africa. Um, but I've also got video footage of people out in the streets supporting it, they're cheering it, it's jubilant, mm-hmm. jubilant scenes. I don't see the opposite. Um, it seems to continue to happen in, 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 in Niger. Yeah. The, uh, there's still protests happening outside the French... Uh, military base. Military base, like tens of thousands of people. Uh, yesterday. Demanding that they leave because the French are kind of taking their heels in and saying we're not going anywhere, but... Uh, and then uh, in, in, in Niger, they... Um, they were at the time of the coup. There last month, they, uh, the people, there were people protest or well, supporters of the coup uh, in in Niger in the streets, all shouting, uh, um, "Long live Russia! Long live Putin!" and mm. down, down with France. You know what I mean? So there's obviously that element. You can't deny it when the population or, or people on the streets, at least, are, are making those are chanting those slogans. You can't deny that there's obviously a geopolitical aspect to all of this. The extent to which. There was direct involvement. I mean, the U.S. State Department officially said that they didn't see any sign of Wagner or Russian forces involved in the coup in Niger. Um, but, you know, I th- that's why I think most of these events, you know, they would be all over it if, if, if uh-huh. the Russians were, were anywhere near it. I mean, remember Crimea and Little Green Men, uh-huh. you know, blah, blah. They would be all over that. The media would be all over that if they had any evidence for it, but they don't. So um, I think it's more, if it's happening, it's happening at a level of, at a diploma- diplomatic level. Um, and of course, it's hard for the West to turn around and say, you know, accuse Russia of having diplomatic relations with an African country. They've had them for decades. So, like, how can you make, make, any, make a big deal about that? Do you know what I mean? Well, in what's hindsight been- now, a year ago before this kicked off, I remember a bizarre outburst by, what's his name now? Um, Mr. Garden versus Jungle. Borel. Borel, the head of Europe's. He's in quotes, foreign minister, saying about Lavrov specifically to get out of our Africa mm. before this kicked off. So you wonder if they were picking up on that, you know? Yeah, well, they know, like, they know that's going on, but they can't do anything about it and they can't make a big, they can't actually accuse Russia of, mm-hmm. like I said, of having diplomatic relations with Africa and saying, yeah. Uh, Russia, telling Russia to get out of Africa is ridiculous. I mean, every country has, most major countries have diplomatic, diplomatic uh, missions in, in African countries. So it's like, what are you talking about, you know? 
Um, you remember when yeah, but there's also China. We're not talking about China here. China is a big player in Africa and has been for quite a long time as well, especially in Gabon, I think. In, in Gabon, um, China is, for the past nine years, is, is, is the biggest trade partner between with, with Gabon, uh, China. So there's this, the way this kind of thing seems to be happening is 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 that it's happening in a natural way more than anything else, even though, okay, I mean, coups, you can call them natural or what, or if you want, or you can see them as contrived. But the coup, these coups that have been happening, for the most part, haven't been happening as a result or in the way that they've happened in the past, which is some direct involvement of foreign powers, particularly Western powers, in overthrowing an elected government or, or, some, kind of, uh, or some kind of group that's uh, vying or challenging for power. They end up kicking them out or killing them or whatever. These coups in, uh, recently in the past few months in Africa don't seem to me to be of the same type. Certainly they're not Western inspired because they're, they're, they're effectively, most of them are, all of them are more or less removing, more or less removing um, diehard Western aligned long term powers or, or governments in these countries. In exchange for, in, depending on the country, more Kind of a multilateral aligned or more or, or even more anti-US, anti-Western powers, like anti-French powers, for it's, example. It's France, France, it's, they, they don't make a, every chance they can. It's France, France, France. Right. Yeah, they're, they're not even bringing the US into it. Yeah, but they know, I mean, certainly a lot of them know that. The France, I mean, the Americans have, have, have had an, yeah, yeah. A, a big inf- influence and a big interest in Africa. Like I said, they were, they were directly involved in, in the assassination of, you know, Pan-African leaders or more nationalistic African leaders over the over the during the Cold War era. You know what I mean. So America definitely has, uh, along with France, a big part to play. You know, but I think it's like I was saying. I think it's um, it's more of a natural order re-establishing itself, um, and there are many different reasons for that. I think it's, but I think trade and the rise of China and you know along with the rise of Russia and the effect they're having on Western power around the globe is having the effect of forcing the Americans to kind of pull their horns in and pull back a little bit, or at least to reduce their ability to uh, project their power and control parts of the world that they, that they have done for quite a long time. And we're seeing then that that produces conditions where the were, were, that are ripe for elements within the country who have long been, you know, kind of agitating for a change in, in, in the power structure and a, and a change in the way the country's run to actually take this, this step, you know what I mean? I mean, there's, you know, if you're going to have a coup, if you're smart enough, if you're going to have a coup, you, you don't want to do it and have it fail, right? You want to, you want to, you have to wait for the correct time to have a coup. Strength in um, numbers. And, and well, I think they waited for Putin's speech last year. Yeah. I mean, so there's there's a lot of elements there, but none of them so far seem to be seem to involve any direct, you know, traditional direct involvement of opposing, you know, powers oppositional to the West. Let's say China, Russia, um, in terms of overthrowing or having a direct hand in, in, in these coups. So it's more about a, a global change. That's basically what I'm saying is that it's more indicative, or it's more um, it's pointing to. A, a, it's evidence of Putin and G's multipolar world, emerging multipolar world, taking shape. Naturally, 
Mm. It's a natural rebalancing from the disbalanced way it has been for quite a long time. It's a natural rebalancing of uh, of power within within the world, you know, towards multipolarity. That seems like to me. You know. mm. Um. Crazy facts about Gabon. It has the third largest proven oil reserves in Africa. Mm. Its population is just 2,300,000. It's a big country, though. And 90% of them are dirt poor. Mm. And France has been taking 50% of that every year for 55 years mm. since independence. Like, <laughs> the fuck? That's insane. And the uranium reserves are even bigger, apparently, than... Um, in uh, in Niger, and I wonder if they mentioned there specifically that the uranium goes to supply France's military. I wonder if that's the division of uh, labor in this, because we know that the mines owned by Areva or whatever it's called, a French company, um, in Niger supply its civilian nuclear reactors in France. So maybe that's how it works. Mm-hmm. The the uranium for reactors comes from Niger, and for the military from Gabon. Here's, here's I, just getting back to what you said. Here's, here's, uh, it was actually, you said it was Borel telling Lavrov, and yeah, that, w- that was the case, but it's a couple of years ago now, just about two years ago now, and it was uh, Lavrov saying it, basically, at the UN. Uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borel told him that Russia should leave Africa. <laughs> As Joseph Borel told me, you better not work in Africa at all, because Africa is our place. That's exactly what he said, Lavrov recalled on Saturday at a press conference in the sidelines of the UN General Our Assembly. place. And you understand now what he meant, Borrell, by that, our place. Like, France is key in Europe. Its nuclear reactors are now, Germany now relies on it, especially after Nord Stream and the green madness and closing the coal mines and not going nuclear. Germany and Spain especially, but also Italy, rely on surplus electrical supply from the grid in France because France is now powering Western Europe because mm-hmm. of those mines. That's what they mean. Mm-hmm. You're not going to interfere with the, the, the current 50-50 split where we take whatever we want and then we send them the budget and allow them to disperse right. whatever meager budget we, we've given them. Yeah. Holy and this was... So, I mean, Who knew that worked in a way? Yeah, if you go, yeah, if you go back to the uh, that article, just down below there, the first kind of quoted section, uh, and to say... Um, this is what Borel said, and to say, I'm here first, so you get out of here. Uh, there was Lavras commenting on what Borel said, basically saying, him saying that I'm here first, so you get out of here, is insulting to the government of Bamako, which is in Mali, the Mali, Mali government, uh, which had already invited external partners. So, um, And he said, secondly, that's no way to talk to anyone at all. <laughs> um, so these people, that's, and that's two years ago, you know, uh, talking, t- telling the Russians to get out of Mali. Or anywhere else in Africa. It's all ours. Mm. I mean... Two, it was two years ago. Yeah, 2021. Two yeah, years. September 2021. Last year, Lavrov did his major tour of Africa, and, and the, the US State Department interfered there. They said no one, no one meet him at all. Yeah. And they all lined up to shake his hands, you know, everywhere yeah. he went. Um, so the whole thing is, it's, it's pretty interesting that, 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 that this is happening right now. You know, it's all, it all has echoes of the decline of America, of the Western Empire... Western global empire led by America, and it all happening just. I mean, it's ha- obviously like Russia. 
Russia now, there was a scramble for Africa, or the, or the, the, the modern scramble for Africa, let's say, in, during the Cold War, and it was all about America, it was all over Africa and all over different parts of the world, overthrowing governments, installing military bases, etc., in order to secure the world against communism. Right, come 19, early 1990s, communism goes away, then Russia's in tatters, rebuilds itself under Putin, and now they're able to reassert themselves in a way that they couldn't during the Cold War. So communism and the communist ideology uh, under the Soviet Union seems, seems to have been a... I mean, it didn't work, if you know what I mean. Okay, they held on to certain... Obviously, they had got Eastern Europe and, 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 and different areas, a few other areas of the globe, but generally the West under capitalism got the lion's share and that was it. And there was, because, it, was, because it was detente. It was, yeah. The lines were drawn and that was it. There was no more... And they were very careful to make sure that they held power, like we were saying, through coups and all that kind of stuff. Any attempt to kind of come out from under America's sway and the West's sway um, in the Cold War and any country, strategically important country in the world, was met with direct uh, retaliation. They always had the edge because money. Right. Capitalism did win that ideological battle. Right, because they threw money always have the edge. And the Russians finally grokked that. Yeah. And they said, okay, let's change and play their game. Right. And now they're playing their game by their rules. And suddenly it's like, now it becomes more oh, equal. we're trashing yeah. all those rules. Right. Because they're being beaten at their own game. Yeah. But there's also the element where, I mean, you'd think in theory the US and, it, and other Western countries could continue to do as they have done in Africa, which would be like have a counter coup now, like in these African nations that, that will have been coups that have not been favorable that the West hasn't liked. Surely they can... Why can't they go in like they did in the past, go in there and uh, have a counter-coup, you know, flood, flood the place with some, you know, paramilitaries, weapons, whatever. There's something else going on there where, that, where they're either not willing to do that or they can't do that anymore, which is another, which also maybe is a function of... But again, that's the question. Where's the Russian or Chinese military influence or backing to these countries that allows them to... Has that been happening behind the scenes? Have there been weapons from Russia and, and China flowing into this country to bolster the, the, the military, you know, the, mm. the, the, the military um, capability of the, in the country that has taken power? Because it, a lot of it, it's military, it's the military that are, are behind these coups, effectively. They're the ones who are leading the coups and overthrowing the, the corrupt Western-aligned governments. Let's assume to some extent, yes. But I think the main glue that's holding them together in a positive direction that's giving these new leadership in West Africa a reason for mm. not going back to is that whole financial, is financial and, and f- the, the promise of economic development. Right, financial prospects. Longer yeah. term. Yeah. Um, they see it themselves. Decades, not just, yeah. okay, this year we're going to supply you all this money. That's your budget. Now, you be good and disperse it to the people. And, like, obviously, human psychology, mm. what's going to happen? The leading family is mm. going to keep it for themselves right. this year, you know. But if you say, here's a 20-year project, mm. dam plus we, Al- we get this oil, plus we send road. you 10, you know, 100 engineers, and they actually build the damn thing Roads, this railways. year, then, you know, the incentive, the positive yeah. incentive changes. And the thing is, the West doesn't have a counter to that, because we, we, well, it's not who's we, who's we, Western man, our leadership is so inured in the short term. Or just bribe them. 
Mm-hmm. It's worked so well for 60 yeah. years. We're not going to do anything different. Yeah. That they, they, they don't have an alternative promise or vision to well, give. Well, they're not willing to. They were never willing to put that amount of money in to build up the country because they wanted the country compliant because they were afraid, effectively, during the whole Cold War. That, that if they, they built it up, they could lose it. Right. If they invest a lot in infrastructure in these African countries and build up their economies and make them more kind of like first world countries or whatever, uh, then it could just go south. Everything stabilizes, everybody's happy and then well, but they turn and, and, and turn away from us and align with Russia or the, between what, the, the lines, Eastern Bloc. What it says is that in hindsight they knew that the natural development in the, that time was that if the country did develop it, it would first go independent and then it would actually align with well, at the very least Eastern Well, communists. it would be multipolar yeah. at least. Or, or at the time they call it those, um, the NAM, the non-aligned movement. Right. right? Um, do you remember in um, August 22, was it? Was it last year? Jesus, time, I get lost now. Uh, Afghanistan, the US flees Afghanistan, right? Well, flees, whatever. It was contrived to some extent. But do you remember the scenes of the, the ruling family um, with the, all the, trying to get out with all the cash? Mm-hmm. So much freaking cash was on the plane, it was falling off the tarmac. There's, there's video footage here of the cash they found from the Bongo, Bongo family. Um, I, don't, I don't know what happened. I presume they fled to France. Um, I tried to find out if that's actually the case, but so far that's all been kept on the QT. It would make sense. There are, there's other articles. If you look up, it's mentioned in that explainer we looked at, the, the assets they own in France are unbelievable. They have prime property. They own like sports franchises. They own land. They own businesses in, in France proper. Go ahead and play that. Some of the cash they, they supposedly confiscated in one of the homes of the sons, I think. The colonial franc, euros, dollars, you name it. No doubt that's only the tip of the iceberg. Um, okay. Okay, let's, I want to watch something else now. You remember this. When George Maloney was running in Italy, she was feeling kind of truthy, mm-hmm. and she dished it out, and that's why everyone got excited. Or that's why she was elected. She's turned out to be a total disappointment, um, Obama style. She's gone back on everything she promised, but it's still worth refreshing our memories, especially what she said about French policy in Africa, because it pertained to the migration crisis of the time, twenty fifteen onwards in Southern Europe, in Italy especially. Stop. Questo è un bambino che lavora in una miniera d'oro in Burkina Faso. Il Burkina Faso è una delle nazioni più povere del mondo. Per il Burkina Faso che ha l'oro, la Francia stampa moneta coloniale. In cambio pretende che finiscano nelle casse del tesoro francese il 50% di tutto quello che il Burkina Faso esporta. L'oro che questo bambino si infila in un cunicolo per tirare fuori finisce per lo più nelle casse dello Stato francese. Allora la soluzione non è prendere gli africani e spostarli in Europa. La soluzione è liberare l'Africa da certi europei che la sfruttano e consentire a queste persone di vivere di quello che è. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah but maybe, a good idea for a very long time. And um, summarize if, if you couldn't see that, she was um, holding up a picture of. Uh, what she said was a child working in a gold mine in Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso is rich in gold. And she said, this child will work in the mine and 
50%, again, that figure, half, 50% of the proceeds of the wealth of that mine or the gold itself will actually go and fill French coffers. Um, her point being the whole migration policy mm-hmm. is, you know, completely backwards. She said there explicitly, we don't need to take, take them here. We need to, we need to we let need them to, develop we need there. To, yeah. Which, which, with, uh, by, uh, and not steal the resources, basically. So they can now, now, we have, now we have a way to synthesize the left imperial critique of empire and the right one. These elites don't care. So on the one hand, you, you could look at the, the, uh, what's going on in West Africa now and say, ah, there you see France, um, white supremacist, right? Mm-hmm. It's colonialist. It's, there you go. There's the white man doing his thing. That's what it looks like from the left perspective. But now from the right, how do, you, how do you merge the two? How do you make them both square up? They don't care. In fact, they welcome Africans to come to Europe to share in, to share, not so much to share. They need their work. They want their labor here, right, mm-hmm. for cheap in Europe because they're, because they're not racist. They have no problem. But the thing is, they have no affinity to anyone. They don't have affinity to their own populations and the effect it will have on them. Depressing wages, for mm-hmm. example, causing social chaos because of clashes and cultural clashes, all mm-hmm. the whole cultural war that's emerged from this. They don't want to build up their countries over there. No, they want their stuff. And including their labor. Mm-hmm. So bring it all here, and we can all share in the benefits of it here in a beautiful globalist utopia. Mm-hmm. You know, Well, we'll still be on top. That's the key part. No matter what happens, we don't care if Mongolians, Africans, Asians, whoever, bring them all over here. They have no affinity to their own people, to their own country, so long as the goods keep flowing, including Mm -hmm. the labor. Mm -hmm. That's how you square up the two issues. It's, and unfortunately, we're still, you know, people are still in the grip of the culture wars. That's still kind of the step that's yet to really... I've heard it here and there, but few people really connect it all. You know, it's either a left and a left critique of empire or a right one, and the right one sticks to migration. Oh, they're doing it because they want to brown Europe, like an intention to mm-hmm. actually do away with the white race. Which, you know, people are entertaining, and you can see why they're entertaining. But it, when you think about it logically, it's mad on the face of it. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, which makes sense until it doesn't make sense either. That, you know. It, because well, look, you have the, to the listen left, to the right wing critique. How, left, how can Macron like love migrants from Africa, but do this to Africa? Yeah, well, because he's self interested. Uh, but he loves well, exactly <laughs> by doing that to Africa. He is encouraging the inflow influx of migrants from Africa. That's why he loves them. That's why he loves both. In fact, one is a means to the other. You plunder Africa, impoverish the population, and force large numbers of people to flee the country and come to France, where they get, where they work for, you know, they have a better life, but they work for meaningful wages and, and, like you said, push down, push down wages for, you know, for everyone, for, for everyone. Um, but the, the the left narrative um, has always been, it has been anti-colonialist um, and condemning Western colonialism in African countries, for example, for, for one example. Um, but they at the but that kind of compassion, let's say, uh, that they have extends to well, until we can stop 
Western colonialism in poor regions of the world, plundering the resources and forcing the population to leave, when the, that's still our fault. They're, they're about, the left narrative has always been about taking responsibility. So when you force people to leave countries because you've been plundering the resources, then those people should be welcomed into your country and we should welcome them because it's our fault. The liberal followers, but the people who masquerade as liberals at the top. The politicians, but they're liars. Exactly. <laughs> they don't Basically. have, what I'm saying, they don't have compassion for either the population they're nominally representing and ruling over or the migrants. They don't have compassion for anybody except themselves. Uh, here's an example. This is in, in Niger. Uh, it's, a, it's a picture of one of the placards. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, somebody just um, drew it up there. It's from an Al Jazeera um, article. Huge protests in Niger demand French force to leave. Um, and the coup leaders have also ordered the expulsion of France's ambassador, uh, who's shown no sign of leaving. And the, the, the placard that's been held up there says... Uh, can, you, can you zoom on it? Yeah, probably, yeah. Uh, I, I saw it. Yeah, good job. Uh, it's basically two people, two two figures drawn, one with the flag of Niger and one with the flag of France, and the one with the flag of Niger is pushing the, the French guy out, and it says "Quitte chez nous," which means "leave our, leave our, leave our country." Um, and the French guy is saying, uh, "We refuse. How will we live without uh, Niger?" Uh-huh. And, and under underneath it says, "You're going to leave. Niger is not a region of France." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those are popular protests. So, obviously, the people are pretty, pretty politically aware. And how could they not be? Like you know, after so many years of of that kind of plunder. And Absolutely. Um, just some more recent updates. Uh, you mentioned what well, you just mentioned there, and that one, the ambassador of France mm. has been given forty eight hours to leave. The protests are outside the military base, mm-hmm. outside the capital and Niamey. Um, more updates. Uh, <laughs> Paris. I don't know. This is heading to something. Maybe, maybe it, it won't blow up and it'll blow over and someone will back down. But as of now, today, Sunday, the 3rd of September, Paris refused to pull its troops out of the country. There are around 1,500 troops at that base in Niamey, um, at an air base. Uh, the ambassador, indeed, was given 48 hours to leave. I don't know how they can hold them to that, but they've started applying pressure because um, they have cut off power and supplies to the French embassy mm-hmm. in Yami. Um, so no one in or out. That, I mean, that's, uh, Macron's response to this is um, <clears throat> he's not backing down. He quote, I speak every day to President Bazoum. He's the democratically elected leader of Niger. Uh, we support him. We do not recognize those who carried out the push, the push. The decisions we will take, whatever they may be, will be based upon exchanges with Bazoum. Um, there's a report from Andalou. Nigerian authorities cut off electricity and water to French embassy. Um, okay, something else that happened. Macron gave a speech. What he did was he came back from his holidays somewhere in French Pacific. God knows where he was this time. Um, and he recalled his ambassadors for a conference. which he gave a speech, but it was also publicized. So French media have been commenting on it. Um, I'll play a clip. I think this one has English subs. Um, they're a bit hard to follow because Macron speaks so fast in French that... 
the subtitles are flying, but we'll give it a go. Ah, no. I have the Wrong text. One. This, this has Spanish. Yeah, it has oh, Spanish yeah. subs. Uh, anyway, I, I can tell you what he said. It's, what was that, a couple of minutes? Well, that's only 20 seconds. No, it's too short. Uh, basically, it's a, it was a big long speech. He talked about a bunch of things, but he says, finally talking about civility, security, and, and, and the fight against terrorism obviously brings me to Africa. Our approach to Africa is not just one of security. I want to be very clear here, and I will come back to this in a moment. We are involved in security because there are terrorist risks, and there still are, and because there is a demand from sovereign states for us to come and help them. It was in this context that first Operation Serval and then Operation Barkhane, that's French operations in Mali, um, I think both in Mali, yeah, were, dis- were decided. I say this very forcefully because if we forget this today, if we give in to the unacceptable arguments of this Baroque alliance of so-called pan-Africans with the neo-imperialists. That's a hint about Putin. Who's a neo-imperialist? He's, he's referencing Putin. He says, we're all living among madmen. So you're not, we cannot give in to the unacceptable arguments of this Baroque alliance of so-called... So he's, he's basically saying, as far as Macron is aware, that there's an alliance or at least there's arguments being put forward by what he believes or what he understands to be an alliance of so-called pan-Africans and neo-imperialists, i.e. the people not the people organizing coups, recent coups in Africa, and obviously the people you know, that support them among the population and different political groups, and neo-imperialists. I think he's talking there about Russia and China. Mm-hmm. And he says, if we give in to those arguments that they make, which is basically... Africa should have more control over its own resources. Um, Macron says that we are living among madmen to give in to those arguments. Yep. He said France intervened in 2013 because states asked us to intervene because they were simply being cut in two. If France had not intervened, um, we would not be talking about Mali, Burkina Faso or Niger today. These states would no longer exist within their territorial limits. I can tell you that with certainty. Right. And that's the part that's gone viral. And it, I'm glad we didn't bother playing because at 20 seconds out of context, it looks like Macron is saying Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger would not exist without us because on the face of it. But the full context of what he said is not much better. It is a no. barely veiled ideological cover. It's interesting that what they've had to do Please. is to revert to the GWAT the global war on terror. What yeah, he's talking about terrorism, is... Terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. The jihadists... 9-11. 9-11, 9-11. The jihadists a decade ago would have run over and, he, in his words, cut those three countries in two had we not intervened. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, we were asked to come. Well, who asked you to come? Your puppets in those countries asked you to come. Mm-hmm. That's, that's who asked. But still, okay, whatever. They, they are the, let's just go with that. They're the constitutionally elected authority, blah, blah, blah. And they formally requested, like Russia did, for example, uh, Syria did with Russia, formally asked to come in, okay? That's acceptable in international law. So that happened. Okay, what happened then? Terrorism exploded in those countries. Terror attacks went to the roof. To the point where it's only after that it was all a bit strange for Frenchies about 10 years ago. They were like, well, what are we doing in Africa? There had been no major terrorist attacks yet. The Islamic terror threat had yet came afterwards. Mm-hmm. It hadn't happened in France yet, 2015, 16, mm-hmm. 17, and so on. 
So it's interesting, I find, that they have to go back to this. They can't offer an alternative vision. They can't promise economic development. Mm -hmm. They're having to revert back to the GWAT narrative. They've got nothing else. Terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. I mean, this is what the the new junta said three weeks ago. Um, Well, actually, let's go back a little bit further. The new regime in Mali a few months ago said this about France and terrorism. Um, from Al Jazeera, but it was widely reported. Mali accuses France of training terrorists in the country. Mm-hmm. Prime Minister Maiga, and oh, this was probably before the coup, because that was the democratically elected blah, blah, blah. So he was still a, the, the pro-France regime, right? The Prime Minister says French troops created an enclave in northern Mali and handed it over to terrorist group Ansar al-Din. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's anomalous, but let's not talk about that. Well, just more recently, Niger, the new junta there, we can play this, said almost exactly the same thing. So, it's you see what I mean? This is like a barely veiled rationale, moral cause for why France should... should oh, no, we, are, we cannot leave. We must protect you. What's this one? Niger's new military rulers on Wednesday accused France of having unilaterally freed captured terrorists, a term used for jihadists, and of breaching a ban on the country's airspace. They claim that France released a number of jihadists who then gathered to plan an attack on military positions in the tri-border area. Through direct communication with Western partners, the behavior of the French forces was criticized for having unilaterally released captured terrorist prisoners. The regime also accused France of having allowed a military plane to take off Wednesday from neighboring Chad, which then crossed into Niger, defying a ban imposed on Sunday. Basically, the message is our client, our long-term client dictator in this country that allows, that allows us to plunder the resources of that country, he needs to stay there because he's the only one keeping the terrorist threat in check. If he goes, or if there's any sign of him going, then the terrorist threat will come back because we control the terrorist threat. So if you ever try to get rid, anybody ever lobbies or rabble-rouse to try and get rid of our client dictator in this country that is facilitating us plundering the country, then we will release some terrorists or we will arm some terrorists and they will end up fighting against anybody who tries to depose our man in the country. You see? But... That is resolved down to we are keeping that country safe from terrorists. Mm-hmm. The missing part of the ingredient is that we are largely controlling the terrorists and we release them as needed. And that has been played out around the world, like you mentioned in France. The same policy, for different, slightly different reasons, was employed in, in the US, in European countries, and in other places around the world, effectively by, ultimately, can, most of them can be tracked back to Western powers creating in one way or another or facilitating the growth and the increase in power of these terrorist groups that were used to keep a country either destabilised and or keep a client regime mm. in power to stop normalisation to stop, stop to, to prevent uh, the country stabilising and becoming Developed. A normally developed yeah. country are developing normally, uh, in which case it would most likely, they fear, always have feared that it would 
slip beyond their grasp and yeah. align with countries, you know, around them, countries that are naturally more important. For example, Europe, big problem for America with Europe was that it would get too close and did get too close to Russia, particularly via energy um, energy uh, cooperation basically with Russian gas and oil, yeah. pulling Europe into Russia's sphere of influence. Go, go east of there, any other country uh, across Eurasia, the same thing. If any country that was strategically important to America for resources primarily, if they started to slip away, uh, or if they, if they were allowed to develop naturally and normally, then who are they going to do business with? Well, they're going to do business with Eurasian countries. Russia is the biggest Eurasian country, uh, and also China. Africa, the same. The problem, the problem for America is that it's way over there from Eurasia. It's far away from the biggest landmass on the planet with 80% of the natural resources on the planet, 80% of uh, the, the, the population. And how do you control that? Well, you control it through chaos. It's the empire of chaos. Mm. That's the only way they can maintain their ability to plunder that major landmass in the world and keep, I keep love how, control. I love how they see Russia in everything when it comes to, well, obviously Ukraine, but before that, four years of bloody Russiagate. Russia is controlling our population through the internet, you know, nonstop. I see Russia, Russian malign influence everywhere. Mm-hmm. But you've got populations waving the Russian flag all over West Africa, mm-hmm. and they don't see it. Yeah. They just go, I can't see that. Instead, they talk up terrorism. Yeah. And it brings me Our back Russian to 2014. Influence. It reminds me of that. That timing of what the way that happened the way isis came out of the desert in well there were some signs of a build-up before but i think it's march or april at the latest 2014 it's six weeks after crimea Mm. isis isis and crimea just kind of fell off the news big time because now sort of there's head choppers everywhere with high quality production videos orange jumpsuits mm-hmm. and la 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 music and there's jihadi day from london and the beatles and you know mm-hmm. they make a whole horror show production out of it it's it but it's tied with russia and geopolitics mm-hmm. big time in its timing mm-hmm. you see it in the timing yeah you can see whose hand is behind it only from a geopolitical perspective and a historical perspective yeah yeah. Yeah, Macron, he's, he's, he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Because, like I said, the dependence now within Europe, given Nord Stream, uh, given inflation, gas prices going up, caused by their geopolitical interventions and what they want. Meanwhile, over here, in their, back do- in their backyard... It's falling apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, I just, I asked you before, do you think anything will happen? But the ECOWAS is threatening to intervene. Um, I should just clarify that in his speech, Macron, um, he's a hell of a speaker because he kind of, he speaks forthrightly in one instant, but he speaks very fast and fluently as well. Mm. Um, and then he can quickly drop an aside. That actually is the key part, but he leaves that. And a, a key aside he made in a speech to his ambassadors last week was, well, we're not actually going to go into Africa or anything. Anyway, moving on, you know, but we're supporting ECOWAS to fully, you know, mm-hmm. get in there and pick the force. So yeah. I believe him. I, like you said, I don't think they, they, they can. No, and it's not, all, it's not all rosy, obviously. Like, I mean, 
there's there's questions over this guy who's the, the coup leader basically in um, in 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 Gabon. You know um, what's his name? Uh, Brice Neguema. Yeah, General Brice Clothair Oligui Neguema. Uh, he's he's uh, he's Bongo, the deposed long-term uh-huh. Western-backed dictator. He, he's his cousin. Um, and so he's seen as kind of part of that clique or whatever. But, um, and he, and he, this guy, this general, I mean, he trained in, in the US and all that kind of stuff, you know, under, because he's been around for a long time under, under Bongo and stuff. And everybody mm. got, everybody was trained in the US and all that kind of stuff. So there's some suggestion that, um, this, this may be, uh, well, he, he may have been, if you throw that up here, it's, it's um, he may have been, uh, he may have been being groomed as a uh, as a replacement for Bongo by the West as well. So, okay. uh, if you scroll down a little bit, um, Francois Conrad, a political analyst at Oxford Economics, noted that the events unfolding might be the result of internal divisions among Gabon's elites. No, near the top. Oh yeah, okay. There are lots of reasons to think that. Uh, an extended Bongo family members. There are lots of reasons to think that the. Who was was the wider elite in Gabon preserving itself by getting rid of the very narrow elite made up of Ali Bongo, his son Nuruddin, and his wife Sylvia? Okay. Um, blah blah blah. Um, yeah. So, so they may not be all equal in quality, and this may be t- attempting to 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 ride the wave. The Jesus, the African Spring, or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's almost like. I mean, I was reading on. Uh, on one of the t- Russian Telegram channels, the, the guy was saying that um, French sources, according to him, whoever they are, report that the U.S. has been cultivating this guy, this general, the leader of the coup, to replace Bongo, and the timeline was unexpectedly pushed up to seize the political initiative before latent socio-economic processes threatened to spiral into another bona fide anti-imperialist revolution. Um, so latent socioeconomic processes, i.e., well, people there have been suffering socioeconomically for a long time, but it's the prospect of mm-hmm. uh, genuine prospect of them improving that would spur people on to, and that's where you see these pro- these, these protests in the streets, why you have a, po- a lot of a lot of uh, support for it uh, among the population. Now, that's a factor, and, and even if there is in this general guy, if even if he's still thinking of you know, m- you know. Uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, kind of thing. He's going to have to. They're, they're, in a lot of these countries, it's not. It's not a fairy tale. You're not going to have this wonderful, quote unquote, democracy suddenly ushered in, right? But it, you're always going to have some kind of level of corruption amongst the the elite at the top, as you do everywhere. But it's w- which way they're looking. Mm-hmm. You know that mm-hmm. elite. If they look towards the the, the east, towards Russia and China, uh, then there's a much better chance of genuine socioeconomic development compared to if they're looking towards the West. Yeah, that's a good point. We should always remember the Arab Spring and what a false dawn that was. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of genuine populist uprisings and then there was like a whole bunch of coups that led to Syria, catastrophe, Libya, catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Um, same here. I suppose then, yeah, that mitigates or that should temper any excitement or... Mm-hmm. Positive, yeah. It's like go Africa, kind of because at the end of the day, don't. Yeah, but don't look at don't look at the minutiae, the details in any particular country, but look at the overall picture of and this, like I said at the beginning, uh, 
this looks like to be th- th- these coups, this this change of, of power structure in Africa seems to be part of the broader, you know, sea change going on globally. Yeah, where American and Western power is waning, and the power uh, in the East, Russia and China, etc., is in the ascendant. Yeah, and other countries are just going to naturally move towards there because of the reasons we've said because it's not just because oh look Russia and China are, 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 are better now or whatever it's like they're actively playing a much bigger part a much yeah. bigger economic role in the world as they have the right to do because of the resources the two of them together Russia with its natural resources and China with its population and manufacturing capabilities once they once they let loose if you know what I mean once they're set free in a certain sense um, economically around the world, they're going to have a significant influence. And it doesn't take a lot. America is such a fragile empire in the sense that its power, its dominant position for so long it is, has always been dependent on it holding on to, um, it, it controlling many other countries in the world through force. Uh-huh. Only a little bit has, and, and not only that, but America's, you know, it's, it's, I'm going to use a crass analogy here. It's like, you know, a very f- like overweight person who eats twenty cheeseburgers every day, they'll suffer inordinately if you just take away two cheeseburgers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't have to starve them completely. They don't mm-hmm. have to completely deny it all their food, but because they're so fixated on food. Any reduction in food and per- becomes a big problem and for them. It must be constant growth, right? Because it has to be more and more and more. It better be twenty one next year, and right? Exactly. Uh, if yeah. it's not, because you're building the weight up. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's it's a sickness, you know. It's an addiction, and anybody anybody who's addicted to something like that, if they if they, were, if they experience any reduction in their supply of their narcotic, of their drug. Then yeah. they, su- they, they they suffer orderly and they can go into meltdown very very easily. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Chairman Mao said in the 1950s, "America is a paper tiger mm. at the peak of its power." Mm. He didn't think it would change in his lifetime, but um, he knew mm. he knew it would change sooner or later. It's unsustainable, I suppose. Then, at the okay, that's a potential long-term direction change. This is going to go in, and that would be an overall. These are signs good thing for Africa, right? Yeah. But in the short term, the usefulness for people is to see because this this ends up ripping the mask off. You see, Macron's trying to put it back on; he's smearing the global war on terror back over it. Eh, that's not working because it's mm-hmm. ripping off the mask. It's an opportunity for people to see how things actually are. This reminds me of like the early Trump days, where we weren't kind of like, "Yay, Team Trump," because mm-hmm. you know we guess correctly that it wouldn't actually arrest the terminal decline of the United States empire. Mm-hmm. That has proven to be true. Mm-hmm. But our excitement and interest in it was that the clash was going to reveal truths mm-hmm. about the United States power and the world at yeah. large. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that's all I've got to say about the war in Africa, but um, speaking of the world at large, did you see um, Mitch McConnell went into TIA again? Do we want to watch that, or is that just too sad, even for a power hungry? You had an oh. interesting theory about this because we, we were talking about like this. How do you make total information awareness? <laughs> no, where he blanks out. Mm. Maybe we should. Will we play it? People say I. 
we can talk over it. This is the second time, people, in three weeks that the nominal head of the of one of the two largest political parties in the United States has just frozen on screen. Do you remember, remember years ago with the journalists were speaking garbage for a while on screen and people were like, what the hell is going on with them? Now it's happening to political people. What am I talking about? What? Running for re-election in 2026. Oh. Thinking. No, he's not thinking. Did That's the thing. He's, he's frozen. Running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. Senator. Penny. Yep. They go to take him out, but he can't move. He's locked to that podium. Okay. Somebody else have a question? Please speak up. Yeah, speak up, because the reason he paused is because he couldn't hear the question. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck me. Okay. Um, we were talking about, and you have a theory, like, you noticed that an unbelievable amount of senators and representatives today are, like, way over the age of 70. And this has well, not been a norm. Just some, some stats here. It's, uh, I struck it up on Twitter there just for, you know, just to put it out there. Um, so there's a graph showing the percentage of Congress over the age of 70. Um, from 1800 or so until today, more or less. Um, we see, you know, growing in the 1900s and peaking a little bit in the 1940s. So obviously various different, you know, reasons for, I suppose, the different ebb and flow of the different ages and all that kind of stuff and the time times when it happened. But it's pretty remarkable that in the, just in the early 1980s, you had this, you know, increase yeah. sp spike and then it's just shot up since then you know we have these long-term career politicians which probably wasn't a thing wasn't a term that people you know used you know you know 50 60 years ago uh -huh. they but weren't calling for term limits no but today it's career politicians so many of them uh what do you call them um, mr mcconnell being one of them and it's just being ridiculous you know what i mean Joe Biden feinstein being wheeled out in a wheelchair just signing yeah. here and she's like what am i yeah. signing right well that's i mean that's obviously indicative of kind of a, a certain level of cronyism and, you know, obviously corruption within the system where people who um, have been in, in, in political, holding politi political office for, for decades continue to hold it or, or hold it for decades and then keep on going, basically, you know what I mean? And it's to do with the way politi the political system in America works, that it's basically funded, it's run by money, it runs on money, and where that money comes from, it comes from corporations and lobbyists, you know, basically corporations funding political candidates for vested interests amongst the, amongst the corporations, and you know, you'd have to assume intel agencies are, are, are part of that, you know, because basically you're living in, in a fascistic kind of country in, in America, in the literal sense of, or the dictionary sense of uh, the... the the merger mer merging of, uh, of of state and corporations and, and state being really in the US the Intel Intel community Intel operatives or Intel chiefs or whatever um, so yeah I just wrote on it that you know that graph shows to me that that spike that around uh, that consolidation of power over the US government by Intel operatives because as far as I'm concerned the Intel 
community has run the U.S., essentially run the U.S. for a long time. Uh, and other vested interests began in earnest in the 1980s, establishing politicians who accepted the rule of the intel groups and were kept in place and promoted, including into the White House, for decades via covert financial and other support, which prevented new upstarts or any, anybody else from, from upsetting this, from getting political power and, and upsetting the system. And then I just threw in there the witness the Intel Org's fury at Trump's attempt to actually wield power in a way that did not align with their agenda. Yeah. Um, so basically the suggestion is that they would keep re- reliable, proven mm-hmm. hatchet people in power for as long as possible because, well, well it's easier to do yeah, than to have to vet the new people coming right, you in have and to, changing things. I mean, you're, you're, you're playing whack-a-mole at that point. You know what I mean? There's so much, uh, you know... If you bring in a whole raft of new people, it's like you don't know who you're getting. You don't know what the way they're aligned and they have to be told. They have to be brought into the big secret, which is that you guys in Congress and in the White House don't actually run the country in any meaningful way. You, you pass laws sign, and all that kind of stuff. You sign off you on sign stuff. Off what we but in the you. big decisions that determine the course of the country and you know socially and, 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 and domestically and in a foreign policy way, you don't get to make those decisions. They're decided by backroom boys in the intel communities who are never elected, never show their faces. And so that's the way it happens. And once someone's, you know, you've, you've schooled a politician, a new politician in that, and they accept it. And if, if they don't accept it, you know, you can use different methods to kind of blackmail them or threaten them. I mean, of course, there's vested interests personally where they want to remain as politicians because it's a really cushy job and they make a lot of money. So you don't have to threaten them too much usually. But once, they, once they, they're in that system and they realize that they're just puppets largely, they don't really have a lot of influence or, or or control over the over the country, and they've accepted that. Well, you want to keep those people on, you know what I mean? Because they're as the years go by, they're going to become more and more, you know, comfortable. Let's say and accustomed to that way of operating, where they're just they're playing second fiddle all the time. To bring in every four years, every five years, whatever it is, uh, a new face, a young new face, you know what I mean? And then have to go through the process of indoctrinating that person, or coercing, or explaining to that person. Um, just too much. You know, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of members of Congress, you know, every four years. I mean, some of them might get a couple of terms. Ideally, you would have, you know, a change of the guard. Because America's a big country, 330 million people, you know, certainly you've got, at each, you know, each election uh, cycle goes round. Surely there's somebody to select from that number of people who might be a bit better than the guy who's doing the job right there or might have a new perspective on things, you know, um, and might actually want to be a true representative of the will of the people rather than just a member of the establishment. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, that's the United States. Well, I don't know. This, have you seen the news in Ireland? The Irish government has gone the more traditional route. Um Rather than you know, I suppose there it's a bit different because the regime's like in its prime, you know. There's not there's not a gerontocracy yet. Um, they created they've done what they attempted to do in the first couple of years of Biden, where they had an, a disinformation czar. Remember how flatly that fell? Mm-hmm. Just, okay, we're not doing that. The Irish government has created a new anti misinformation force called the Electoral Commission. Mm-hmm. Why election? Oh, oh, right. Okay. It, which has very extensive powers to, quote, require the correction or removal of information we believe to be correct 
all in an effort to enhance democracy. It's called the Electoral Commission, but it makes no actual, it doesn't make any explicit connections with elections. But what it's riding on, of course, is Russiagate election interference, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, holy moly. There's, there's also in Ireland, there's a referendum, another bloody referendum coming up on whether to change yet another line on the Constitution, right? Because there is an archaic line. There, there are more than a few in the Constitution, right? One of them is about a woman's role and her duties in the household. Okay? Mm-hmm. So they want a referendum to change it, but they backtracked. <laughs> they backtracked because the commission involved with writing the draft is having difficulty defining what a woman ah. is. Okay. So just don't talk about women at all when you can't define one, right? <laughs> Mad. Um... Well, clown shoes. The U.S. won't need politicians anymore because the Pentagon is set to deploy AI to, quote, protect people from the same thing, social media dis- disinformation. So this is probably the response. Well, there are another way around when they tried Biden's disinformation SAR and announced it and they had the woman who was an ex-journalist. I'm going to be the SAR. It fell flat. And people like, get out. First mm-hmm. Amendment. So... They get around the First Amendment with this. This has probably been going on already. We know this already, but they're officially announcing it. Um, USOCOM. I, what the hell does that stand for? The U.S. Special Operations Command. Okay, whatever. The Pentagon has contracted a New York-based Accrete AI to deploy software that detects real-time disinformation threats on social media. Didn't they really do that with their algorithms on Facebook and Twitter? <clears throat> is, there, is this a better version? I think this will be more explicit. This will be like, what's, what the Twitter files revealed was that personnel got cozy with Twitter staff mm-hmm. or Facebook staff, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and began to liaise. And it, created, it, it, it kind of got busted because you ended up with too many people. Mm-hmm. sending emails back and forth. Mm-hmm. Sooner or later, I suppose, it was going to be out. Look at it that way. You know, Twitter files was going to happen, whether Musk had bought Twitter or not. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you've got, if you've got, I forget the guy's name, the guy who took a lot of the rap, the Jewish mm-hmm. executive for, mm-hmm. I don't know, some Roth. Roth. Roth, Joel Roth. He Joel ended Roth. up getting a lot of flack. I actually had sympathy for him because if you look in some of the Twitter file email correspondence that was published, even at the time, he's like, what about First Amendment people? He didn't didn't think about it too much, though. This is like, what the hell? Uh, But they went on and they tried to do it ad hoc. So you would have FBI agent X send, uh, and they got bigger and bigger. It just grew too big. They would send a whole database, an Excel spreadsheet in the morning. We want all these Mm -hmm. accounts dealt with. And then some eager git at Twitter would write back and say, we did it. They're all gone. And then they later found, well, actually, they're all real American accounts. They're not Russian disinfo, but whatever. That's how it was being done. This is different. This is will be done at source, mm-hmm. so to speak. I presume that their algorithms, AI, whatever, is going to be able to um, tamp down mm. someone's social media account or quiet it all together without having to go through a Twitter personnel mm. or, and or someone in the FBI. It. Yeah, they just they're going to do it as source. They're going to need to have something like this because 
the personnel are corrupt or they're stupid or they get caught out mm-hmm. and then it goes public and it actually backfires on them. Mm-hmm. So why not just have AI do it? You've got a mm-hmm. gerontocracy. You can't rely on people anymore. So they're going to have mm-hmm. machines do it for it. It's not going to work anyway, but they'll try. Um, there was, did you see this... Um, Neo-Nazi group in Florida. Mm. Um, what's the basic story here? Daily Mail reports white supremacists march on Orlando yesterday, I think, waving swastika flags and raising Heil Hitler salutes just days after racist Dollar General store attack in Jacksonville that left three dead. Um yeah, that that was a shooting that did happen. Racist shooter Ryan Palmeter killed three black people in Jacksonville. That seems to be on the level. That is what happened. He mm-hmm. was genuinely racist and nuts, and he did kill three blacks. Um, and then, in, <laughs> so you can imagine the kind of, it's already provoked a, ra- a racial tension, right? And then in the middle of that, these boys show up for protest. What, in support of the killer? Uh, everyone, everyone on Twitter is like, fed boys, so they can see through it. But I mean, So this group calls itself, who, who were the guys before? The Patriot March people? It was a bunch of patriots. These guys, instead of wearing blue and black, they were red and black. Go ahead and play that. All right, red and black. Heil Hitler, hail victory. <laughs> okay, at the end, there's some journalists there and they're talking to some baldy guy. Let's have a, a little listen. I've got another video here. Some of his... Um, Political views. Christopher, there's a presidential race going on right now. Are you going to vote in 2024? What do you think is going to happen? My vote this? is useless. I think Biden's better than Trump because he sends rockets to Ukraine. for Biden. In, in, in support of Ukraine, you mean? Hell Ukraine. Hell Azov. Love Ukraine. Yeah, Hell Ukraine. Tell me this, Christopher. Come on, you're fucking traitor, you fucking reborn slave. Okay, thanks, boys. Uh, this guy here, yeah, does, does he look familiar? Is, is he Ukrainian? Yeah. I think he's American, actually. Is he? He fought in he Ukraine. Was in, okay, fought in Ukraine. Max Blumenthal recognized him instantly. Um, his name is Kent Boneface McClellan. Right, that's right. Yeah. He was a volunteer for in Azov Regiment. So he's not only survived, shit, he's back home and he's free to do his thing. Hmm. What's America? Freedom. Freedom. Freedom to be a Nazi. That's just mad. I, but it, wh- what the hell is that supposed to do? Well, we're for Biden. It, obviously, it was only going to work to be provocative if they were for Trump, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, did the Fed boys like get the programming mixed with? Well, actually, yeah, those people are. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't pay much attention to them, except that's interesting. 
politically, I suppose, the fact that they're talking about Biden, President Trump, can send rocks to Ukraine. Slav Ukraini! Ukraini Slavi! Slavi Slavi Ukraini! I don't know how to say it properly, but whatever. Slavas, Ukraini, Ukraine, Ukraine Slavi. Slavi Ukraini? I don't know. I mean, there's the, the fact that he support, supported backing the wrong horse, right? For that narrative to work that they're white supremacists, they should have been pro Trump. But the other one is they're drawing attention to the Nazi element in yeah. Ukraine that's not supposed to exist right. or that's supposed to be you know just a small thing did you see Burning Man was going on this past weekend uh, yeah you know Burning yeah, Man yeah, like, yeah, yeah, where yeah. a bunch of hipsters and, and arseholes go to the desert and burn stuff and take drugs uh, in America oh, it's, come it's, on. It's, it's they're quint- not all arseholes they are it's quintessentially American you go into the desert burn stuff and take drugs it's freedom anyway uh, they uh, put that up there they um, 26 you're just anti-hippie a 26-foot-tall box sculpture paid fiery tribute to Ukraine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Get a picture of it there. It's a wonderful look. It's a big box sculpture. Someone spent a lot of money on it and just burned it because that's what you do. Burn they do, it! They do it every year, yeah. Well, you, I mean, the, it's the, better. That's the trident. You know what it is? It's the kind of like lefty, hipster version of a monster truck rally where you crush things with a monster truck for right. conservatives. But here, for hipsters, you go into the desert and spend a lot more money on building big things and then burn them. Um so in the middle of the, of the ephemeral city, yes, that rises in Nevada's Black Rock Desert each summer, 26-foot-tall, 13-foot-wide box was set ablaze. The flames formed a column in the sky, engulfing the wooden tower for over 20 minutes. It was amazing, Neil. Before it collapsed to reveal a secret monument hidden within, secret, a giant steel phoenix representing the resilience of war-torn Ukraine. Slava Ukraine, Ukraine, Slava, Slava, Slava Ukraine, Heil Hitler. Uh, Heil Hitler, vote Biden. Vote Biden, Heil Hitler, Slava Ukraine. Uh, and, um, and then immediately... That's, that's in, what I mean about narratives. It's just a melting pot of bullshit, like, yeah. in the United States right now. This one titled Phoenix was the work of 14 artists and fabricators, fabricators is right, in both Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and Chicago. In the moments before Thursday's burn audio of explosions, an air raid sirens rang out around the installation while an, opera, while an opera singer arrived unplanned to perform a song in Ukrainian. It was so special. It was super special. And then down below, it's symbols of defiance. Burning things is a symbol of defiance. Right. You know, it's also kind of pagan. Uh, you see, and it, under that photo there, it says, the artist behind Phoenix took inspiration from Ukraine's efforts to shield its public monuments from airstrikes. What? Just, just like that. Um, air, the Russians were going to airstrike that? Oh, no, no, no. No, it's symbolic, yeah. <laughs> And the artist hoped Phoenix would keep Ukraine in the public consciousness. The sculpture is meant to show, to be a show of strength and a celebration of their culture, in addition to the, a meditation on the effects of war. So anyway... Do you remember... And it's a show of strength and all that kind of stuff, um, blah, 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 blah. But then immediately after that... The that er, the Burning Man festival that area of, in the, of, of the desert was um, deluged with rain, and since then, every all the all the uh, festival goers have been tramping around in about you know six inches of mud. Yeah, yeah, that, which is an unusual weather event in itself. It rains yeah. now and then, but that's the first time. But right I went after, back and checked, and they've the never day. had a uh, flooding like that. Burning Man has been delayed or whatever to due to extreme heat and. But dust the, devils and all kinds of strange things, but the yeah. energy that they were, you know, that the, the vibe that they were given off with their with their Slava Ukraini thing, that's what called down the called out, called down the the French rain. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to, to it to clean them. Yes, to cleanse it away. Yeah, um, but 
just in case you thought, I know we've talked about this for probably, how long is it now? More than two years, right? When did the Ukraine war start? Last year, February 2022. Let's forget time. Okay, so it's yeah, I know. 18 months. You forget me. 18 months. And in case you thought, in case you didn't know what was happening, here's a telegraph to tell you that Ukraine's victory is closer than ever. Right. But be warned, Russia, when it is shattered as a result of losing in Ukraine, because Ukraine is winning, shattered Russia is nothing to celebrate. So is this good news or bad news? Superior weapons and strong morale are giving Ukrainian troops a crucial edge in battle, which is, for anybody who actually is paying any attention to the actual details of what's been happening in Ukraine, is complete and utter horseshit. I mean, it's hard to believe that in a supposedly credible mainstream media, British newspaper, that it's hard to believe, and it always had, like, I never took it that any, no matter how distorted it was, I I don't think I've ever seen an article in 20 years of watching them, a a headline in in a mainstream media article that was, completely false and was never corrected. This is one that's completely false. Like, Ukraine's victory being closer than ever is the actual exact opposite. Mm. Ukraine's victory is farther than ever is actually what's happening. So it's it's amazing, at least in this Ukraine war, they've just pulled out the stuff. Like, we've obviously, we've mentioned the stuff before where it's like we see these, we've put up these headlines over and over again of Ukraine is winning, Ukraine is winning. You know, as more and more Ukrainian soldiers and, and equipment and Western equipment gets completely obliterated, the more they put up headlines in Western media saying Ukraine is winning. So the more Ukraine loses, the more they put up Ukraine is winning. Mm. And we've mentioned that before, but uh, at this point when they're really, really in a bad way and even there's, there's moves in Western countries and stuff to kind of talk about how are we going to get out of this, how are we going to stop this, because if they walk away, it's over in, in a day, yeah. you know. So as it looks, as it gets closer and closer to the eventual denouement where the West just walks away from Ukraine and it all falls apart and then there's a complete collapse of Ukraine, as that gets closer and closer, the more they put out headlines that say exactly the opposite. So that's why I'm highlighting this because mm-hmm. I know I've highlighted it before where they kept on saying Ukraine is winning, Ukraine is winning, but it's just it's getting to the point where I don't know what they're going to say. When, when there's an inverse proport, like inverse yes, yeah. connection yeah. between reality and it's inverse what they're proportional, saying. Yeah. And the closer the reality comes, the further they but what are they going to do? Break like, away into castles in the sky. You know, say Ukraine collapses into a giant sinkhole, the whole country. Mm-hmm. That's feasible. Well, they say that Ukraine is rising like a phoenix and is going to be. <laughs> Well, they will at Burning Man. Because <laughs> they're I mean, over in the desert in America, high. <laughs> it doesn't you know, matter. They can believe whatever you want to believe. Like, there is no objective reality, right? But, right. Like, like when Zelensky is actually signing, if he's, if he's still alive, when Zelensky is signing um, unconditional, paper, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, unconditional surrender. surrender. When he's signing his unconditional surrender, how will the Western media report it? Will they say that Ukraine just won? Zelensky signs paper that recognizes Russia's complete defeat and vic- Ukraine's victory. I mean, I, I mean that's that's what they should do like, you know. I think it's 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 informed by this kind of hubris that um they're not going to lose. What is lose? That's unclear, right? But 
they think they have endless resources to throw at this, hmm. mostly money, but also material. Even though they've also been warning that they're running out of supplies and they're having to, you know, crank open factories and stuff like that, I still think they live in a very comfortable hubris, sense of hubris that Russia will never be able to catch up with us. That NATO is so strong. For example, it came through even in um, Victor Orban's interview with um, Tucker Carlson this week. It was great. And he's, you know, for peace, he's definitely the outlier in NATO stand. But he said something in passing, and I think it was genuine. He believed it. He says, look, we can never win in the way we think we can win with this. He also said neither can Russia because NATO is far too strong for yeah. it. And I think the belief is, and that as an alliance, we're just too big economically and militarily. Russia can't defeat NATO. So that, even he is informed by that sense of hubris, mm-hmm. that they are unbeatable. We, we, may, we may actually be battled out to a draw here. Mm. And we might have, we'll have difficulty spinning it into a win. Zelensky signs document that does really well for Ukraine, or whatever they're going to have to bail out of it. But these people are so up their own arses that they don't – it's not even in their horizon that they can come out of this catastrophically, uh, by which I mean most likely the breakup of NATO. Yeah. Speaking of people being up arses, uh, do you see Tucker Carlson talking about Obama oh, there this week? Um, here, we'll just play it there. I mean, you may as well just listen to it in case anybody hasn't heard it, but uh, we'll comment on it in a minute. You know, everybody I knew, the world I lived in, in Northwest D.C., like everyone works either directly for the government or is a a parasite on government effectively, including people I love and know really well. And the media is, too, by the way. I mean, the media is reporting on government, but it's also dependent on government. You know, in 2008, it became really clear that Barack Obama had been having sex with men and smoking crack. And a guy came forward, Larry Sinclair, and said, I'll sign an affidavit. And he did. I'll take a lie detector. And he did. I smoked crack with Barack Obama and had sex with him. Well, that was obviously true. Nobody reported it, not because they were squeamish about sex or drugs, but because the Obama campaign said anyone who reports on this gets no access to the Obama campaign. And so they didn't report on it. So that happens. That's just one small example. But that happens all the time with lots of different issues. Now, and do you, do you believe uh, that transpired or do you do. believe well, the guy is legitimate or both? Oh, the Larry Sinclair story? Oh, that definitely happened. Oh, for sure. I mean, I've talked to Larry Sinclair about it. And, oh, definitely it happened. I mean, if you – Larry Sinclair has been in and out of prison at, during one period. I mean, you know, 40 years ago he was in and out of prison. He's got a criminal record by definition. He's, you know, poor. Uh, he's got a disordered life. He's missing a tooth. Like he's not, you know, an Atlantic fellow. Um, he's not going to the Aspen Ideas Festival. I think he has a record of deception. Obviously, he does. But this story, if you listen to it in detail, is clearly true. I mean, there's just I mean, I'm going to do an interview with him, and you can hear it. And again, it's not going to change the world that Barack Obama likes dudes. I think this was well known. Barack Obama said so himself in a letter to his girlfriend. And by the way, that's kind of Barack Obama's business. I'm not attacking him for, for liking dudes. I'm just saying the <laughs> amount of lying in the media about it was unbelievable. Like People knew this was true, and it was quite obviously true at the time. And people who covered the campaign didn't say anything about it because they didn't want to lose access to the campaign. 
And and that happens all the time up and down government. So it's it's almost like if you have a housekeeper, you think, oh, you know, she works for me. But if you have a housekeeper long enough, you realize, well, you actually work for her and you get caught up in her dramas. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, oh, there. th- there's a weird. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Hopey Change, 2008. Remember Hope Change uh-huh. and outpouring of just love and, and hope and hope for change and the first black American president. And his opponent at the time was McCain mm. and his campaign got the dirt, the Apple research on this. And they did try to make an issue of it. But because it was so apparently scurrilous against the background of almost universal saturation Mm. of love bombing about Mm. Obama, Mm. it seems so extreme Mm -hmm. and out of place that people immediately thought, McCain, you're a dirtbag. That's obviously not true Mm -hmm. in the context of Obama's uh, like a prophet or a saint, given the Nobel Peace Prize. This was so true that I found there's loads of stuff when you go actually go and look for it. <laughs> Sinclair wrote a book about it, published on January 1st, 2009, in the interregnum between Bush and Obama. Here's the book title. Um, Barack Obama and Larry Sinclair, Cocaine, Sex, Lies, and Murder? Question mark. Look at the hardcover price or the paperback. You've got to pay $1,000 if you want a copy from Amazon. Um it's such old news. I've also got here testimony by the lawyer of Obama's chauffeur while he was still a senator in the mid-90s, uh, how he would drop him off to male prostitutes um, in the hotel rooms. The crack pipe would be out in the limo, fellatio, all the details. It was all like affidavits and stuff. Mm. It wasn't, and Obama never countersued mm. or anything like that. It was just pure media obliteration of the story. So I had a closet homosexual crack pipe smoke, crack smoking guy who who became the most loved and awesomest most awesomest president. Ever. I mean, obviously the, the most morally upright. Right, that's how they presented. Right, a saint. So the opposite, and you wonder then. I mean, if he has a history of drug abuse and stuff, you know, we can leave it. I'm not talking about the homosexuality, but if you. But there's also there's more than just homosexuality, and because I mean, there's plenty of reason to assume that. Um, Michelle Obama is probably a hermaphrodite. So that is that different to what? To standard, common, or garden homosexuality that you would that Obama would be. It's look. It's deviant. I mean, it, it's it's. Oh, okay, I have to clarify. Do you know what I mean? Because that, it, it, that it, immediately sounds like I'm saying being gay is deviant. No, not necessarily. It's what the deviance is what Crocker Carlson was emphasizing: the projection of an image versus mm. the reality. Yeah. Not being honest about your about who you are and, and, and yeah, run and owning it. Yeah, run as a gay. See how it goes. Yeah, it, maybe it wouldn't have worked in 2008, but 10 years later it would have. Mm. It would definitely not have been a bad mark against you. You know, probably would have. But it, it's it's the seediness of it, mm-hmm. you know. And that's and those those are the people in uh, supposedly highest off in the land. And then you wonder what the people who encouraged and put him in power. They obviously shame the kind. They share the same kind of uh, you know outlook and mentality and perspective and deviancy in life. So, I mean, America is run by deviants, you know, and has been for a long time. And I'm not talking about even you know the, the, the overt members of, of the political class and the, and the government, but rather well, people the, behind the scenes. The They're stories all about deviant. Hillary Clinton, like, are yeah. It's massively corrupt. Crazy. And not just corrupt in the standard way of corruption, but it's, like you're saying, deviant. It's, 
it's 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 psychologically disturbed uh, people yeah, who are running th- these running people the country get a kick out of being abnormal. Right, they're absolutely not on the picket line advocating for equal rights for gays. In which why can't we just be accepted as normal? Mm. It's the very opposite of that. Mm. They know they're abnormal. They want to keep it secret, and they get a kick out of the. It, they enjoy it more knowing that they're presenting a very different image. Mm-hmm than what they really are, you know? Right. And that, and that, that you know, plays out in, in, into all, all different aspects of, of government policy then down the line, right? It's not just them personally, but it's the policies that they push on people and the, the laws that they try and enact and what they try to force down people's throats, like, for example. Yeah, they'll tell, tell parents how to raise their kids. Yeah, right. And not only that, How the hell would they know? In other areas, like, in terms of, like, like they enjoy, there's an element of enjoying domination and control and uh, power over other people and, you know, Manipulating and mm, making people suffer, essentially. You know, that, that, that gets into that area, that psychologically that gets into that, that area of, of, of deviancy. You know what I mean? Where you, they're not good people. They're not just weird, quirky people. They're, they're, they're evil people in that sense because they've shown themselves to be in terms of the policies that they've, that they've enacted. Like there's – this is – is this on CNN? You can just put it up there. Uh, I don't know. What? Smithsonian? I don't know. Anyway, have a listen. It's this guy behind me here um, on the wall who has yet to be put in prison. And You know him from um, the Harry Potter movies? <laughs> that little goblin thing? He, that, that's where he was before he became director of the National Institutes of Health. I think he's a CDC. saint now. He's retired and he's saint a saint. Fauci. Yeah. So just play that. Uh, Brett Stevens in The Times talked about Cochrane. Put that on the screen. The most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illness, including COVID-19, was published last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is the lead author, were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that they, masks, make any difference, he told the journalist Mayan Damasi, full stop. But wait, hold on. What about the N95 masks as opposed to the lower quality surgical or cloth masks? Makes no difference. None of it, he said. Well, what about the studies that initially persuaded policymakers to impose mask mandates? They were convinced by non-randomized studies, flawed observational studies. How do we get beyond that finding of that particular review? Yeah, but there are other studies, Michael, that show at an individual level for individual. When you're talking about the effect on the epidemic or the pandemic as a whole, the data are less strong. Blah, blah, blah. Which is literally the opposite tack he took before, which was, hang on, individual rights. Listen, we're in a pandemic. It's Mm -hmm. public policy. We must think of the general. The guy's a psychopath, so he will always bounce out of this until he is physically stopped and put where he should be. Yeah. The, the, you, you'll never, you'll never, this guy's been going since the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. Like, he, you, can't, you, you, you can't stop him by having an argument with him and rationalizing out. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. It is good to see CNN on, but on his case, though. The reason I put that up there is because it's an example of the deviancy and the, the psychologically disturbed nature of the people in positions of power who impose these policies on people, uh, like, put a mask on you. Know, it puts the mask on its face or it gets, you know, fired from its job or locked mm. in its home again type thing, you know. Mm. I mean, we're dealing with that level of, 
of um, sadism, effectively, mm. uh, were these people, someone who are pushing these policies and making sure that they filter down and become part of official government policy, uh, they're enjoying making people suffer. That's the nature of the people who are in control of America, at least. Yeah. Uh, they enjoy, they sadistically enjoy making members of the population suffer. <laughs> That's what you're dealing with. That's the only analysis of the situation that explains the world we're in today and where, where we've come to and, and, and what's, what's actually going yeah. on on a day-by-day basis. And you have to reach that conclusion when even the CNN anchor, after the fact, of course, cites the actual studies that we were talking about in you know early 2020, but whatever, about the efficacy of face masks against respiratory-borne viruses, it means that that CNN anchor has seen enough now of the proof of the effects it's had on people. Took him long he's enough. read about it, he's watched, he's absorbed all of it now. He was in his ideological blinkers before, but now he's, okay, right. Okay, he will never say they were right. Mm-hmm. But he's coming back to this guy who also has access to all the consequences of his actions, and he's still pushing them. Mm-hmm. Sadism is the only yeah. logical conclusion. He enjoys doing it. Yeah. All right. We've done enough? Yeah, I think so. Um, yes. Yes. There's okay. more. There's always more. But There's always uh, more. But they were the main topics. Okay. Anyway, the other day, before we go, the other day you were saying that you wished Biden would fall into a vat of concrete. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And initially I agreed. Just metaphorically. No, literally you said. Did I? Yeah. But initially I agreed, but then I realized that that would set a very dangerous precedent. And on that, by yourself. <laughs> yes, and on that hilarious note, uh, we're going to leave it there. So <laughs> thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, thanks for commenting. Don't forget to like and subscribe. We'll be back next week with another show. So until then, have a good one. See ya. Thanks all. Bye, everyone. Can't stop the signal now.